Hello, everybody. Welcome. It's delightful to see such a nice crowd on this non-rainy day. I'm Jan Saragoni, and I'll be conducting a conversation with my dear friend and college classmate, Joel Richard Paul. A couple of things right off the bat. Please silence all devices and take note of the emergency exits, one there and one there. I'm going to start with an introduction of our author. That would be you. <laughs> We're here today to talk about Joel's latest book, Without Precedent, Chief Justice John Marshall and His Times, but you already knew that. Um, and by way of introduction, uh, here's a little bit about Joel. Uh, he's a professor of constitutional and international economic law at the University of California Hastings Law School, where he was also the former associate academic dean for graduate and global programs. He has also taught on the law faculties of University of California, Berkeley, Yale University, the University of Connecticut, Leiden, or is it Leiden University? Leiden. Leiden University in the Netherlands, and American University. He's been involved in several high-profile Supreme Court cases and testified before Congress numerous times on trade policy and constitutional issues, including with testimony in 1991 corroborating Professor Anita Hill's testimony concerning Justice Clarence Thomas before the Senate Judiciary Committee. He looked terrific on TV, by the way. You know, he really looked good on national news. I was younger. You were, weren't we all? After graduating from Amherst, Joel studied at the London School of Economics, Harvard Law School, and the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. I know all this, but his resume is so uh, uh, distinguished, I have to write it all out to be reminded. Uh, Joel's books include Unlikely Allies, How a Merchant, a Playwright and a Spy Saved the American Revolution, which was named one of the best books of 2009 by the Washington Post. And by the way, the reviews for uh, Without Precedent have been just through the roof. Uh, he recently finished writing a musical based on Unlikely Allies, and I'm hoping uh, the same thing might happen with Without Precedent. So, Joel, I'm going to just start off with one question. If you had to convince everybody in this room to read without precedent in, in 50 words or, or fewer, what would you say? Well, this is a book about a man who uh, I believe was probably the most important American of the founding generation. Uh, John Marshall did more than any other American uh, in terms of having a lasting imprint on our political and legal system. Uh, he is the guy who basically established the Supreme Court as it is today. Uh, uh, prior to his time, the Supreme Court was really not an institution that anybody wanted to serve on. Um, it was difficult to get people to, to be on the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court did not have a significant uh, caseload. Uh, it was not regarded as a co-equal branch of the, of the federal government. Um, it did not have the authority that the Supreme Court has today, but he really established that, and we'll talk about how later. Um, uh, he also had an enormous impact uh, as a diplomat uh, and as Secretary of State. People don't know that. Most people, when they think about John Marshall, they think about his contributions to um, uh, judicial review, uh, the case most people are familiar with, Marbury versus Madison. But uh, just as important, uh, he was a major statesman of the revolutionary uh, era. 
Uh, he was uh, Thomas Jefferson's principal rival in Virginia. Uh, he was the leader of the Federalist Party in the South. Um, he was a very close confidant of uh, George Washington and John Adams. Uh, he was sent on a secret diplomatic mission that we'll talk about to France uh, that was, uh, was very critical uh, at, at a very delicate time of our relations with France. And then as Secretary of State, uh, he was the guy who had to deal with numerous uh, controversies between uh, Britain, France, Spain, and the Barbary pirates, all of whom were on the verge of war against the United States. And uh, he managed to sort of navigate his way through all of these crises. So he had an enormous impact on the country's uh, diplomatic uh, as well as its uh, legal uh, heritage. And the other factor is that uh, John Marshall is the guy who, in addition to sort of creating the basic principles of our constitutional system, also introduced many of the basic principles of our international law system. Um, uh, he had a lot of cases involving pirates, slaves, and Indians, and nobody had really thought very much about that. And so acting in a way without any precedent, he would sort of pluck these ideas out of thin air. He just invented them. And his, his gift for invention um, uh, managed to introduce a lot of the basic principles of international law that are still uh, very much a part of our system today. And I'm going I'm to guess that a lot of people in this room, and, and I have to say, uh, myself included, I didn't know the richness of his career and the contributions that Marshall made to, to our American story. Why, why has he been so under the radar? Well, I think it, you know, it isn't so much that he's been under the radar, because I think most people probably know we something about We know the name. About, of course, we know something about About his role right. as, as, as Chief Justice. Right. His contributions as Chief Justice were so enormous that they really kind of eclipsed, I think, the other contributions he made as a statesman and a diplomat. What, what first drew you to, to the story of John Marshall? What, what, what first gave you the inspiration to tackle this, this figure? So as, as, uh, as Jan said, I, I teach at the University of Connecticut, and I've taught other law schools. At uh, University of California, that's right. I used to teach at the University of Connecticut. I'm in Boston now. I remember that. Um, and um, I, I, taught, I teach international and constitutional law. And um, what is really striking is that while everyone's familiar with his name in connection with constitutional law, I saw more and more uh, the frequency of his contributions to international law as well. Uh, so I was interested in him for that reason. And um, I was writing a book about the history of international law in US uh, courts. And in the process of writing that book, I really learned a lot about uh, his contributions. Um, and, and I thought he was just a really great character. My previous book was a book called Unlikely Allies, which is the true story of how a cross-dressing French spy saves the American Revolution. Um, and you should all read it. And the, um, uh, that book uh, uh, came out uh, about nine years ago with Penguin. Uh, and I went back to my editor at Penguin and I said, you know, um, this is a, I've got a great story to tell about uh, John Marshall. And it, he took some convincing. Um, because he said to me, you know, well, you know, we need to find another cross-dressing French spy. Um, uh, and uh, so I did. Um, and there's another one in this book, too. Um, <clears throat> well, well, speaking about, so, so how, how is this book different from other Marshall biographies? Well, I think what's, what's different is that most Marshall biographies really focus a lot on his, uh, his, con his legal contributions. Um, there's some great biographies of John Marshall out there, and, but they're, they're, they 
are frankly a little, little dry and, and are, are much larger than my book, um, the most famous of which is a four-volume set by uh, Beveridge uh, from the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and um, what I tried to do in my book was to give more, more color to his life. Um, uh, he had a really interesting uh, family life. Uh, John Marshall was a guy who was um, literally uh, raised in a log cabin, a two-room log cabin, with his 14 brothers and sisters. It was a 400-square-foot log cabin on the western frontier of Virginia, what was then the western frontier of Virginia. Uh, and uh, he grew up really in tremendous poverty. He did not have uh, uh, any, he had very little formal education. He had one year of, 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 of grammar school. Um, uh, and yet he managed to accomplish all of these remarkable things. And I think what was critical uh, to his success was he developed this capacity for inventing himself. Uh, for constantly having to reinvent himself. Um, and that capacity, I think, for invention really is the source of his creativity, his capacity also for inventing legal principles uh, that were so, so important to his success. What was your biggest surprise when you jumped into the research? My biggest surprise when I jumped into the research? Well, um, <clears throat> the one case that, that everybody knows, Marbury versus Madison, um, which I, I guess... Should I talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah, I'll explain that. So, so uh, Marbury versus Madison is, is the most difficult uh, uh, case we, we teach in constitutional law, so we always start with that to scare the bejesus out of our students. <laughs> and um, it's, a, it's a case involving, um, it's the case which establishes the principle of judicial review, the principle that the court can strike down laws that are contrary to the Constitution. Um, but that's not what it's really about. Um, the, the facts of the case are really interesting. The, the facts of the case uh, are that at a time, John Marshall had just been appointed to the Supreme Court. He was one of those judges who was appointed in the final month of uh, John Adams' administration. Um, it was, and at the same time, many of you know, the Federalists tried to stuff the judiciary with other justices, other judges. Um, so they appointed so-called midnight uh, judges who were um, uh, they created new circuit courts, uh, courts of appeal, um, and some district courts, <clears throat> and also some new justices of the peace in the District of Columbia. And the Federalists were so afraid uh, of the Republicans, they thought the Republicans were revolutionaries, and they wanted to kind of stuff the judiciary as a sort of a, a bulwark against the, the Republicans taking power in both houses of Congress and in the White House. And um, Marshall at the time was the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State's job in those days was pretty much everything. He was really the prime minister. He was really the whole government. Um, there was nothing that the Secretary of State didn't do other than the War Department. Um, he, he even ran the Justice Department. Uh, and uh, in his capacity as Secretary of State, he was responsible for delivering all these commissions to these so-called midnight judges. Um, so in the closing, literally closing hours of Adams' administration, Marshall's running around getting all these commissions delivered to all these judges. Um, <clears throat> he doesn't quite get all of the commissions delivered. And so there's a stack of commissions sitting on the desk of the Secretary of State the next morning when Thomas Jefferson takes the oath of office and becomes president. The new Secretary of State, <clears throat> James Madison, <clears throat> uh, 
is ordered by Jefferson not to deliver these commissions. And one of the commissions was a commission as Justice of the Peace for William Marbury. Um, being Justice of the Peace was a lousy job. Uh, it was a lousy job because it didn't pay anything. Um, it, it really didn't have any authority other than deciding cases for under $10. Um, and basically, the, the role of the Justice of Peace was to um, deal with prostitutes and, and drunks. Um, of which there were many, you uh, write, uh, in Washington many. during many that Washington. time. Washington was, a, was, yes, was a great place for that sort of thing. And uh, so there were, uh, and there were 42 of them, so it really wasn't even that, that special a job. Um, William Marbury was a very wealthy, very successful banker. He, he didn't really need this job, um, but it was an honorific kind of position that he had. Um, he files a lawsuit uh, to get the commission delivered to him. Uh, the commission, after all, had been approved by, by Congress. Uh, it had been signed by the president. It had been gotten this great seal of the United States on it. Uh, it was all set to go. Why couldn't he be Justice of the Peace? <clears throat> um, so he files a lawsuit under Section 13 of the Judiciary Act of 1789, which basically says that you can go to the Supreme Court and get an, a, a, what's called a writ of mandamus, an order that um, someone in the government do something. So he files this lawsuit <clears throat> in the Supreme Court, and um, the, uh, uh, the official story is uh, th there's an evidentiary problem. Um, there's an evidentiary problem because in order to argue a case before the Supreme Court, you have to have some evidence that there was, in fact, a commission and that he was entitled to receive it. Well, everybody in the whole country knew that he had been appointed to this job. Everybody knew that he had been voted by Congress. But, but what was the evidence of that? Well, the Republicans in the Senate refused to deliver over an official record of his having been approved by the Senate. So um, his lawyer, Charles Lee, goes to the Secretary of State and asks the Secretary of State, uh, James Madison, and James Madison refuses to cooperate. And he asks the assistant, and the assistant refuses to cooperate. And he asks the secretary, and the secretary won't report it. So he can't get any evidence that there ever was a commission to be delivered to um, William Marbury. The only guy who can really testify to that is sitting on the Supreme Court as Chief Justice, right? So he can't ask Marshall to be uh, a witness in the case. <clears throat> So then it turns out that Marshall's brother, James, um, submits an affidavit which says that James was actually the guy that Marshall had asked to deliver the commission, and that James saw the commission, and, and James forgot to deliver the commission. He's really sorry about the whole thing. Um, <clears throat> and so that's the basis of the lawsuit. What turns out, what I discovered, and the surprise. The, the surprise. That was the point of your question, right? right? Was, the, was the surprise. The surprise was, it turns out, that's not what happened. Um, in fact, I found a letter that John Marshall wrote to his brother James in which he said, oh, you won't believe what happened. I forgot to deliver this commission, and all these commissions were undelivered. What am I going to do about it? Well, it turns out that John Marshall and uh, his brother James and the attorney for William Marbury sat down, and they plotted out the whole case. They plotted out the whole case for one reason, and that was to establish the principle that the Supreme Court could not only hold uh, uh, um, uh, the executive accountable, 
that is, to, to, to call the Secretary of State into court and to hold him accountable for his failure to deliver the commission, but also to be able to strike down an act of Congress. And what the court did in a very clever strategic maneuver was the court said, <coughs> the law, the statute, under which William uh, Marbury had filed the original lawsuit in the Supreme Court was unconstitutional. So in other words, the court decided that they didn't have jurisdiction, so they didn't have to decide the substantive question. But by deciding the issue of jurisdiction, they established the principle that they had a kind of equal authority to Congress and to the president. So um, John Marshall essentially asked his brother to perjure Lie. himself. Yes. Lie, for the, yes. for the John Marshall good. suborned perjury from his brother, <laughs> who was himself a federal judge, by the way. Things like that could never happen today. Just um, this is a problem, right, for a biographer like I obviously like John Marshall, and you know, it, it's it. On the one hand, it's very very troubling today if a judge did that. On the other hand, um, it was a way to avoid a constitutional crisis, mm -hmm. uh, because at that time the Republicans were committed to ridding themselves of these of these annoying Federalist judges. Uh, and they, they had set out to impeach all of the Federalist judges. They actually uh, uh, had uh, impeachment uh, uh, charges filed against uh, one of uh, John Marshall's colleagues, uh, uh, Justice uh, uh, Samuel Baconface Chase. Um, <clears throat> and uh, he, was, um, uh, he was impeached by the House, and then the, he wasn't convicted by, by the Senate. But the, the point was that they were determined to make the judiciary a, a, an extension of the political will of the Republican Party, and, uh, and Marshall resisted it through this method. Uh, during this time, Jefferson was president, and Thomas Jefferson was a cousin of John Marshall. And there was a rivalry, uh, maybe even a hatred at times, if that's not too strong a description. No, I think hatred probably would be, would be understated. Be, the understated. <laughs> Uh, and I, I just want to uh, run by, by you one of my favorite descriptions of, of Jefferson and Marshall. Uh, you write in the book that Jefferson lived his life in poetry and Marshall lived his life in prose. And I think that uh, in, in sort of a literal sense, you were referring to the extreme difference in circumstances in which these two cousins uh, grew up. You talk about John in the two-room uh, cabin and, and Jefferson living in, in a much grander lifestyle. Can you talk about the rivalry and the ways in which those differences in upbringing right. affected, right. affected right. them? This, this was like a, a star-crossed rivalry. They, 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 were, they were destined to be, be rivals. Excuse me, were they first cousins or <coughs> second cousins? They were second cousins. Second cousins. They were second cousins. And um, <clears throat> Marshall's um, maternal uh, uh, grandmother was um, the was a uh, it was a Randolph, which was the grand family of of Virginia at the time. They were the wealthiest family, the most powerful, most influential, socially elite family in the, in the state, uh, in the Commonwealth, and the. Um, uh, the story is that uh, Marshall's grandmother, as you'll read in the book, was a kind of a wild woman, and uh, she ran off with a slave overseer, uh, and her brother came after her and, and uh, murdered uh, the slave overseer and her child, uh, and she lost her mind, and the family disinherited her, didn't want to have anything to do with her. Peter 
uh, Jefferson, Jefferson's father, Thomas Jefferson's father, <clears throat> befriended <clears throat> um, uh, William Randolph, who was at that time the owner of, of the family seat at Tuckahoe, and um, persuaded him to name Jefferson as the executor of the estate, which was not normal under those circumstances. And so the family seat that Marshall's family would otherwise have inherited went instead to Jefferson's family. And so Jefferson was raised at Tuckahoe, this grand mansion, fantastic plantation with 500 slaves, the lap of luxury, while Marshall grew up uh, in a two-room log cabin with 14 brothers and sisters scratching out a living in the hard scrabble uh, western frontier of Virginia. And Jefferson, throughout his life, kind of felt he was, he was the superior to Marshall. Marshall was not uneducated, um, uh, you know, didn't have the kind of pedigree that Jefferson had, even though it was, in fact, Marshall's family. Um, Marshall ended up marrying uh, Polly Ambler, who was the daughter of the woman that Jefferson was in love with um, and looked very much like her mother, which was a source of other rivalry. Uh, then when Marshall became an attorney, he ended up buying the practice which, Marsh, which Jefferson had sold his law practice to Randolph, and Randolph then sold his law practice to Marshall. So Marshall literally inherited Jefferson's law practice. And while Jefferson was frankly a mediocre attorney, um, Marshall was the, became the leading attorney uh, in Virginia. <clears throat> and one of his biggest cases happened to involve a debt that was um, uh, uh, due from the wife of Jefferson, um, that is Martha Wales Jefferson. Martha Wales Jefferson's father had incurred an enormous debt, many millions of dollars. Uh, his, uh, the, uh, the debt was jointly incurred by um, Martha Wales' father and by, and by uh, Marshall's client. Marshall would successfully argue that his client was not owed this money, did not have to pay this money. And therefore, the entire debt fell onto Jefferson's wife and therefore Jefferson's estate. And it's one of the factors that led to Jefferson's ultimate insolvency. So there were a lot of personal bitter rivalries there as well as their political rivalry. Uh, and the political rivalry was a result of the fact that while Jefferson was the head of the Republican Party, um, Marshall became the head of the Federalist Party in Virginia. And um, you know, on almost every public issue, they, they clashed uh, bitterly. Uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, Jefferson does not come off as a particularly noble character in this book, not just in this instances <coughs> of uh, petty rivalry, but also in uh, much broader cases, including, if we can jump into this, the one of Aaron Burr and his, his trial for treason. Right, the Aaron Burr case. Um, uh, Aaron Burr got a bum rap in history. Um, uh, and th the truth is that um, uh, while Aaron Burr was not uh, a saint, um, probably what Aaron Burr did was stupid, uh, maybe reckless, but it wasn't really treason. Uh, Jefferson really framed the case against his vice president, Aaron Burr, <clears throat> for treason, because Aaron Burr had not done what Jefferson wanted uh, in the impeachment trial of Justice Samuel Chase. So Jefferson brings this case, and, and um, 
there's, there's no evidence of treason. So Jefferson puts forward a, uh, a claim of what's called constructive treason. And the idea of constructive treason, which was an ancient British doctrine, was that um, the king could subject to trial anyone who he thought had, you know, disrespected him. Um, uh, that, he, that anyone who said something that was, that was uh, hostile to the king or expressed an opinion or did something that was hostile to the king could be tried and hung for constructive treason. Uh, this doctrine had already been uh, rejected in the British courts. Jefferson tried to revive it in the US courts. And it was Marshall who said, no, we're not going down that road, that the First Amendment prohibits uh, the constructive treason. His rejection of constructive treason, I, uh, his rejection of constructive treason, ironically, is the reason that we think of Jefferson today as being a great civil libertarian rather than as a bloodthirsty tyrant for having hung unfairly his own vice president. And in doing so, he also really uh, established the principle that we, we can criticize the chief executive and, and not, not be tried for treason. Uh, where did the alleged uh, declaration of war on Spain come from in all of this? The declaration of war in Spain? Which supposedly Burr was behind. Let's, let's uh, go to war with, with Spain. Right. <coughs> it's incredible right now, but that, right. Yes. that is in so, fact. So, so the, um, uh, thank you. Um, Burr had, um, uh, basically Burr's political career was ended um, after Jefferson decided not to, re, uh, to, to have renominated as vice president. Uh, Aaron Burr tried to run for governor of New York. He lost that race because of Hamilton. Uh, and he was a very bitter man who was kind of lost. He was a guy with a lot of talent and a lot of intelligence, and he felt he should, he should do better. So um, he had a kind of confused idea in his head that he was going to go off and either start a war with Spain for the purposes of annexing Mexico and or start a, a, a new empire for himself in the West. It was all very confused. Uh, and so he, he, he started to raise a military with the idea that they were going to go liberate, in quotes, Mexico from Spain. Um, that was the crime that ultimately precipitated the trial for treason. But the interesting part of that is that earlier on in my book, I explained that Jefferson had basically done the same thing. Jefferson had conspired with the French ambassador at the time, uh, the so-called citizen Genet. Uh, Genet, this is when Jefferson was the Secretary of State uh, in Washington's administration. Jefferson had sat down with Genet and had plotted out um, the idea of an invasion of, of Mexico uh, and uh, a kind of create some kind of a pretext for war with Spain um, for the very same purposes that uh, supposedly Aaron Burr uh, had sought this. Uh, speaking of international uh, intrigue, can you talk about Marshall's life in Paris? Before his life on the court, he was involved himself in, in some international intrigue. Yes, he was. So, um, uh, oh, excuse me, the XYZ affair. The yeah, XYZ affair, who, right. <clears throat> So in the, um, when, when John Adams was elected president, the French revolutionaries thought that Adams was hostile to France, uh, in part because Adams 
said that we should remain neutral as between the wars between France and Britain. He didn't want to get the U.S. involved. We really didn't have the military strength to get involved. The French felt that we owed it to them because they had been our allies in the American Revolution. So the French uh, began seizing U.S. ships on the high seas. And in a period of a few months, they seized 250 U.S. merchant ships. Uh, and this was very disruptive, obviously, of our trade. Uh, and so he sent uh, a commission to, Adams sent a commission to France, uh, which included uh, <clears throat> John Marshall, Elbridge Gerry, and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney. Uh, Elbridge Gerry, you know, one of your former uh, governors, um, and who's probably most famous for giving us gerrymandering. Um, which, have, which is mispronounced because it's actually Gary, not Jerry, I but know I know that. that. Um, <coughs> it should be Gary Mandarin. Gary Mandarin. Yes. Uh, Elbridge Gary uh, went, uh, they went to France together and um, sat down with uh, Monsieur Talleyrand. Talleyrand was the French foreign minister. Um, he was probably the most amoral, duplicitous, fascinating character you'd ever want to meet. Um, he was brilliant and incredibly corrupt. Uh, and the first thing that Talleyrand said to them was, um, before we start our negotiations, we're going to need a $400 million loan from the United States. And also, by the way, I would like you to pay me a bribe of uh, $6 million. And the Americans uh, balked at this, and uh, 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 Marshall in particular objected and said, you know, we're never going to do this. Uh, Gary, uh, Elbridge Gary was a little bit more willing to sort of go along with this and eventually he sort of got snookered into uh, some relationship with, um, uh, with uh, Monsieur Talleyrand. Uh, the <clears throat> Marshal, on the other hand, really stood his ground and fought Talleyrand uh, and they had a deadlock that lasted almost uh, t nine months uh, in France, during which time Talleyrand uh, this is one of my favorite parts of the book. Talleyrand sends all of these secret agents and spies to try to cajole or threaten or blackmail Marshall into giving way and paying the bribe. Um, and um, Marshall, at the time, is living with um, a very famous widow, um, uh, Madame de Vallette, who was the who was the adopted daughter of Voltaire a woman um, of you know, great learning and, and beauty and, and charm. Um, and eventually, she sort of seduces him. Um, and it turns out that she is one of Talleyrand's spies. <clears throat> so that's a little uh, teaser. Jumping back a bit. <laughs> Jumping back a bit to, to uh, Marshall, and uh, you mentioned the, the uh, probable relationship he had with, with this uh, seductress. Meanwhile, back in Virginia is, is Polly, who, right. um, who uh, right. suffered Great Depression right. uh, and to whom Marshall remained quite devoted, right. who lost four children, three children uh, in she infancy? She had ten children. She lost four in, uh, in infancy. And um, only uh, three of his children survived Marshall. Mm -hmm. uh, can we talk a bit more? Actually, maybe this would be a good time for you to read the passage. You, you want to read the passage? Well, okay, read I'll read the passage. But, yeah. maybe but let me just say one thing about Polly, which is that yes. you know, Polly, this is, this, um, Marshall uh, fell in love with Polly when she was 13 years old. 
Um, she, he waited until she turned 16 before marrying her. He was 11 years her senior. Um, and she, she said was, no at first, right? She said no and <coughs> fled upon right, she, the no, proposal? And ran on, right, the whole right. thing. And <clears throat> she, was, she, was, she was very dramatic. <laughs> um, and she was very, um, she had a lot of uh, real or imagined uh, medical issues. And after losing four of her children, uh, she became uh, basically, um, I, I think we would probably say, if not psychotic, she was, she was certainly, she was, she was not functional uh, in any sense. And so she spent most of their married life uh, cons confined to an upstairs bedroom. And, um, and he remained completely devoted to her, uh, with the exception of this possible period in France, but um, he remained completely devoted to her throughout his life, and just there was this great love affair, and, and a lot of the book is about their, their and, love and, affair. And that is one of the many charming um, uh, elements of the book, the uh, description not only of his, his personal life and his affection for Polly and the level of detail. He would still, he was a, an extrovert who loved to entertain, and he would right. still do that, but right. cautioned everybody to be quiet. They had they to take their shoes off. off. They could only shoes. walk around in their stocking feet, yeah. and everybody had to talk very quietly. And, you know. and they had to talk quietly. Um, so if, I, would, I would love for our, our audience here to sort of get a real flavor of, of the book and okay, its beautiful sure. prose. And if you could set up your, your excerpt now. I just happen wonderful. to have a copy. It just happens me. to have a copy. And there are many more out there, too. Uh, yes. So, so this is um, uh, uh, half, halfway through, through the book. So, um, I, 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 I want to make it clear to people that the book is not primarily about Marshall's time on the court. It's really more about his whole life and his career as a statesman and as a diplomat. Uh, Washington in 1801 was what Congressman and Treasury Secretary Albert Gallatin called a hateful place, devoid of any real society or culture. There were scarcely 3,000 inhabitants, including at least 600 slaves. Clustered around the capital were six boarding houses, packed with members of Congress, sometimes two to a bed, a grocer, a tailor, a dry goods store, a shoemaker, and a laundry. The rest of the city still consisted largely of swampland, forest, and brush. Miles of unpaved and unmarked roads separated houses so that an invitation to dine often entailed an expedition of several hours with an outcome that was best uncertain. Since most members of Congress left their families at home in their districts, there was a notable shortage of women. In this social desert, men resorted to whomever was available for companionship and conjugation. As often happens, government provided an appealing market for prostitution. The Supreme Court under Chief Justice John Marshall met for the first time on February 2nd, 1801, in a dark, nondescript ground floor room in the north wing of the unfinished capital. The planners for the capital city had neglected to build a federal courthouse. So only a few days prior, Congress had grudgingly agreed to allow the Supreme Court to share committee room number two with the federal district court and the DC Court of Appeals. The room was the size of a small classroom, unadorned except for the crimson robes edged in ermine that hung on pegs in one corner. There were two windows facing west that overlooked a swamp, a line of poplar trees, 
and a muddy creek that some wit had named the Tiber after the ancient city of Rome. There was no formal bar or bench. The justices sat behind a table facing the lawyers and a few rows of chairs for the sprinkling of spectators. The public had little interest in the court's languid calendar with an average of only six cases a year. This prosaic scene and the physical location of the court underscored the lowly status of the nation's highest court. Chief Justice Marshall sat wedged between his more rotund colleagues. They were all men of far greater learning and experience than Marshall. On the far end was the aged Justice William Cushing. He was the first justice appointed by George Washington and the last American judge to wear a horsehair wig. His shoe buckles and his three-cornered hat branded him as old-fashioned, and he wore that brand with dignity. There was the empty seat for Justice William Patterson of New Jersey, a boisterous Irishman with a lively intellect and shrewd political instincts. Since the court's docket had little of any significance, and since Washington was a dismal place in the winter, Judge Patterson had delayed his return to the court till spring. Then came Justice Samuel Chase of Maryland, who resembled a, a, bulk, who resembled a bear with his bulky mass and fierce demeanor. His rough complexion earned him the nickname Old Bacon Face Chase. <laughs> Chase's views and fiery personality led to a controversy that would ultimately threaten the court's independence and test Marshall's political instincts. Next came Justice Bushrod Washington, the, the president's nephew, who was among Marshall's closest compatriots. They had been friends since Marshall attended uh, law school classes at William & Mary for six weeks. My students, by the way, wish they could attend law school classes for six weeks. <laughs> Finally, there was the puckish Justice Alfred Moore from North Carolina, who, like Marshall, had just been appointed by President Adams. At slightly more than four feet tall, Justice Moore peered from behind the table like a hand puppet between his much larger colleagues. Unlike the other justices who dressed in the elegant gowns favored by the British High Court judges, Marshall wore a plain black robe that hung loosely on his tall, narrow frame. Marshall's robe was a symbolic gesture. It toned down the judiciary's pomp to conform to the classical simplicity favored by the Republicans. But it wasn't merely for show. Marshall's manner and dress were always plain and simple. Even when his innate intelligence and personality had thrust him into the public eye, he never forgot who he was or where he came from. Unlike many of his colleagues, Marshall's federalism did not, sense, did not stem from a sense of entitlement, a desire to mimic the affectations of the aristocracy, or a fear of the lower orders of society. His manner was entirely ordinary. He was not a philosopher like Jefferson. Marshall's federalism sprung not from theory, but from his practical experience as a frontiersman, a soldier, and an attorney. Marshall believed in the practical necessity for collective action against the dangers facing his community. The contrast with the Republican Jefferson was striking. Jefferson lived his life on a grand scale. He extravagantly squandered his family's fortune to perfect his classical home at Monticello. 
He much preferred scholarly pursuits and practicing his violin to indulging in the sweaty give and take of politics. Jefferson may have loved humankind, but he was not especially fond of most people. Though, though Marshall belonged to the party of elites, he practiced republicanism in his everyday life. If Jefferson lived his life in poetry, Marshall lived his in prose. For Marshall, the struggle for human dignity was experienced in the cases he fought and in the humanity and respect he showed to the least among us in his quotidian routines. Thank you, Joel. <laughs> But, but we, we have to sort of address the fact that while Marshall had this sense of, of uh, justice and equality for his fellow human beings, that didn't really extend to uh, the ones who uh, he owned. Uh, and, and I think it's fair to say that Marshall, uh, obviously Jefferson, many of us know uh, the story of, of Jefferson and his relationship uh, both uh, domestically and romantically with, with uh, one slave in particular, Sally Hemings. Sally uh, so fair to say that Marshall was not completely free from the taint of slavery. And part two would be his views on Native Americans, because we're quickly getting into the era of President Jackson. Right, yeah. So uh, it is true that Marshall uh, owned uh, slaves. He had uh, 15 uh, slaves at any one time in his home. Um, that uh, was probably about average for a household of his size. He had 10 children in um, uh, uh, Richmond, Virginia at the time. Um, uh, but unlike many other slaveholders, Marshall uh, opposed uh, slavery and the slave trade. As a legislator in Virginia, uh, he had introduced reforms to allow for uh, voluntary manumission, that is to say, allowing slaveholders to, to free their slaves. Um, he was um, very humane in his treatment of slaves, um, uh, to the extent that that's possible. Um, uh, he provided medical care to them. He um, Defended he had, one in a lawsuit? Uh, he, de he defended, he took on a number of lawsuits. Uh, defending slaves uh, against their masters, uh, most famously one involving Angelica uh, Barnett, who was a slave who had been accused of killing a white man, and he successfully defended her. Um, he also was the founder <clears throat> of the Virginia Colonization Society, which in our liberal times, it's sort of, it's, it's difficult to get our heads around this idea, but at the time, uh, Marshall and many other people thought the most humane way to end slavery would be to create a homeland for slaves in Africa. And so Marshall was the principal person behind that society in Virginia. Uh, he personally financed the Virginia Colonization Society. Um, I think, you know, the bottom line is, um, yes, he lived with this contradiction. On the one hand, he owned slaves. On the, one, on the other hand, he opposed slavery. Um, uh, but I think it's difficult to impose our standards on that time 200 years ago. As a historian, I'm reluctant to do that. I don't want to be judged by the standards 200 years from now either. Uh, so um, uh, you know, that's, that was his, his, his relationship with slavery. Uh, in terms of the Indians, um, he was very much, um, uh, uh, he and Jackson, President Jackson, were really on a collision course. 
Uh, Jackson, uh, as many of you know, was a guy who had really um, was committed to uh, getting rid of the Indian problem. Uh, he wanted the Indians out uh, of the lands uh, east of the Mississippi. <clears throat> Marshall was um, uh, really set out in a series of cases the basic law that today is still the basic principles of Indian law in the United States, um, most famously in the case of Worcester versus Georgia. Uh, Marshall really set out the idea that Indians had a right to occupy their own lands and that the states had no control over the Indians. Um, while he was not successful uh, in stopping Georgia and Jackson from pushing the Indians out of Georgia, uh, and which ultimately led to the Trail of Tears, um, he at least established principles that even today continue to protect uh, Native Americans. Uh, this isn't a book just for lawyers, and, and I think that, that this uh, uh, particular uh, chapter or period in Marshall's life speaks to that. You, you paint a, a very rich picture of, of a man who wasn't just Secretary of State, wasn't just Chief Justice, but had uh, sort of, uh, he appreciated art and culture and theater uh, and was probably what we would, you know, in some cases call a Renaissance man. Uh, what is the relevance of Marshall today? Why, why should we really be paying attention to him? You know, um, I think um, many of us feel uh, that our country right now is uh, plunging towards a constitutional crisis. Uh, and we have a president, a populist president, who, uh, much like President uh, Jefferson, has uh, often expressed disrespect for the judicial process, uh, and who, much like uh, President Jackson, uh, has often demonized certain groups in our society, uh, and whose election, in many ways, may have contributed to feelings of racial uh, animosity uh, at this time. Um, Marshall, uh, and, we, and, and you know, it's often said that we live in a time without precedent, or, or, or that these are unprecedented times. Uh, Marshall uh, also lived through a revolutionary uh, period that was quite unsettling, in which the country was deeply divided. There was a lot of polarizing, polarized opinion. Um, and yet Marshall was able to somehow successfully navigate his way through a thicket of domestic and international problems. Um, with, with a great deal of patience, um, uh, uh, carefully sort of choosing his battles and forging compromise where no compromise oftentimes seemed possible. Uh, I, I think uh, that that's what democracy requires. It requires statesmen and jurists who are practical people, uh, who are people who look for compromise, who try to find common ground, uh, who are willing to uh, sometimes sacrifice some of their ideology uh, for the purposes of coming to a common solution for the common good. Um, and so uh, in that respect, I think that he's a, he is a very inspiring figure. Um, Marshall really had the courage um, to, uh, of his imagination. Uh, he had the, um, he had the, uh, the grace uh, to really uh, hold together uh, a fragile union. He had the, the experience, the recognition that our society is ultimately fragile and that our courts uh, and uh, the independence of our judiciary and the rule of law are really the linchpins of our liberty. 
So I think that's really what the country uh, needs now. And um, Thank you, Joel. I think we'll end it there. Um, thank you very much. And I have to say there is a... <laughs> thank you. Thank you.